Hi everyone, my name is Kristen Eddy, and you're listening to Dreamy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. Dreamy is the sister podcast to Sleepy and is produced by Otis Gray. I wanted to thank everyone for all the amazing reviews and messages since Dreamy has launched. It means so much, and I am so happy that this show has been helping you get the sleep you need. Since Dreamy is a brand new podcast, your reviews help so much in making it easier for other people to find the show and get the sleep that they need too. So if this podcast helps you sleep and you haven't left a review yet, it would mean a lot if you left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help the show grow. And you can leave a request for a book you'd like to hear in the review. Thank you. The music you're hearing is by RBKE, and the cover art for Dreamy is by Gracie Kanan. December is a wonderful month to read Charles Dickens. So tonight, I'm going to read David Copperfield, a classic story following a young boy as he becomes a man. Now is the time to gently close your eyes, get really comfortable, take a deep breath in, and on your exhale, feel your body completely relax while I read you a bedtime story. Chapter One, David Copperfield's Childhood. I was born at Blunderstone in Suffolk in the east of England and was given my poor father's name, David Copperfield. Sadly, he never saw me. He was much older than my mother when they married and died six months before I was born. My father's death made my beautiful young mother very unhappy, and she knew she would find life extremely difficult with a new baby and no husband. The richest and most important in our family was my father's aunt, Miss Betsy Trotwood. She had, in fact, been married once to a handsome young husband, but because he demanded money from her, she decided they should separate. He went abroad, and soon news came of his death. Miss Trotwood bought a small house by the sea and lived there alone with only one servant. She had not spoken to my father since his marriage because she considered he had made a mistake in marrying a very young girl. But just before I was born, when she heard that my mother was expecting a baby, she came to visit Blunderstone. It was a cold, windy Friday afternoon in March. My mother was sitting by the fire, feeling very lonely and unhappy, and crying a little. Suddenly, a stern, 
strange-looking face appeared at the window. Open the door, ordered the stern-faced lady. My mother was shocked, but obeyed at once. You must be David Copperfield's wife, said the lady as she entered. I'm Betsy Trotwood. You've heard of me? Yes, whispered my mother, trembling. How young you are, cried Miss Betsy. Just a baby. My mother started sobbing again. I know I look like a child. I know I was young to be a wife, and I'm young to be a mother. But perhaps I'll die before I become a mother. Come, come, answered Miss Betsy. Have some tea. Then you'll feel better. Peggotty, she called, going to the door. Bring Mrs. Copperfield some tea at once. She sat down again and continued speaking. You were talking about the baby. I'm sure it'll be a girl. Now, as soon as she's born, he, perhaps, said my mother bravely. Don't be stupid. Of course it'll be a she. I'm going to send her to school and educate her well. I want to prevent her from making the mistakes I've made in life. Miss Betsy looked quite angry as she said this. My mother said nothing, as she was not feeling at all well. But tell me, were you and your husband happy? asked Miss Betsy. This made my poor mother feel worse than ever. I know I wasn't very sensible about money or cooking or things like that, she sobbed. But we loved each other, and he was helping me to learn. And then he died. Oh, oh. And she fell back in her chair, completely unconscious. Peggotty, who came in just then with the tea, realized how serious the situation was and took my mother upstairs to bed. The doctor arrived soon afterwards and stayed all evening to take care of his patient. At about midnight, he came downstairs to the sitting room where Miss Betsy was waiting impatiently. Well, doctor, what's the news? How is she? The young mother is quite comfortable, madam, replied the doctor politely. But she, the baby, how is she, cried Miss Betsy. The doctor looked strangely at Miss Betsy. It's a boy, madam, he replied. Miss Betsy said nothing, but walked straight out of the house and never came back. That was how I was born. My early childhood was extremely happy, as my beautiful mother and kind Peggotty took care of me. But when I was about eight, a shadow passed over my happiness. My mother often went out walking in her best clothes with a gentleman called Mr. Murdstone. He had black hair, a big black mustache, and an unpleasant smile and seemed to be very fond of my mother, but I knew that Peggotty did not like him.
A few months later, Peggy told me that my mother was going to have a short holiday with some friends. Meanwhile, Peggy and I would go to stay with her brother Daniel in Yarmouth on the East Coast for two weeks. I was very excited when we climbed into the cart, although it was sad saying goodbye to my mother. Mr. Murdstone was at her shoulder, waving goodbye, as the driver called to his horse, and we drove out of the village. When we got down from the cart in Yarmouth, after our journey, Peggy said, That's the house, Master David. I looked all around, but could only see an old ship on the sand. Is that, that your brother's house? I asked in delight. And when we reached it, I saw it had doors and windows and a chimney, just like a real house. I could not imagine a nicer place to live. Everything was clean and tidy and smelt of fish. Now I was introduced to the Peggotty family. There was Daniel Peggotty, a kind old sailor. Although he was not married, he had adopted two orphans who lived with him and called him uncle. Ham Peggotty was a large young man with a gentle smile, and Emily was a beautiful blue-eyed little girl. They all welcomed Peggotty and me warmly. I spent a wonderfully happy two weeks there, playing all day on the beach with Emily and sleeping in my own little bed on the ship. I am sure I was in love with little Emily in my childish way, and I cried bitterly when we had to say goodbye at the end of the holiday. But on the way home to Blunderstone, Peggotty looked at me very worriedly. Master David, my dear, she said, suddenly in a trembling voice, I must tell you, you'll have to know now. While we've been away, your dear mother has married Mr. Murdstone. He's your stepfather now. I was deeply shocked. I could not understand how my mother could have married that man. And when we arrived home, I could not help showing my mother how very miserable I was. I went straight to my room and lay sobbing on my bed, which made my poor mother very unhappy too. As she sat beside me, holding my hand, Mr. Murdstone suddenly came in. What's this, Clara, my love? He asked sternly. Remember, you must be firm with the boy. I've told you before, you're too weak with him. Oh yes, Edward, I'm afraid you're right, my mother replied quickly. I'm very sorry. I'll try to be firmer with him. And when she left the room, Mr. Murdstone whispered angrily to me, David, do you know what I'll do if you don't obey me? I'll beat you like a dog. I was still very young, and I was very frightened of him. 
If he had said one kind word to me, perhaps I would have liked and trusted him, and my life would have been different. Instead, I hated him for the influence he had over my dear mother, who wanted to be kind to me, but also wanted to please her new husband. That evening, Mr. Murdstone's sister arrived to help my mother in the house. A tall, dark lady with a stern, frowning face. She looked and sounded very much like her brother. I thought she was planning to stay with us for a long time, and I was right. In fact, she intended to stay forever. She started work the next morning. Now, Clara, she said firmly to my mother at breakfast, I am here to help you. You're much too pretty and thoughtless to worry about the servants, the food, and so on. So just hand me your keys to all the cupboards, and I'll take care of everything for you. My poor mother just blushed, looked a little ashamed, and obeyed. From then on, Miss Murdstone took complete control of the house, keeping the keys hanging from her waist as she hurried through the house, checking that everything was being done just as she wished. Chapter 2 David is sent away to school I was very unhappy during this time. Mr. Murdstone insisted on my studying, and so my mother gave me lessons. In the past, she and I had enjoyed our studies together, and she had taught me a lot in her gentle way. But now, both Mr. and Miss Murdstone were present during my lessons, and somehow I could not concentrate or remember what I had learned. My poor mother was very sympathetic and tried to encourage me, sometimes even whispering the answer to me, but the Murdstones had sharp ears. Clara, my love, Mr. Murdstone used to say crossly, remember, be firm. You're making the boy's character worse by helping him like that. Oh, Edward, I'm sorry, my mother replied looking embarrassed and hanging her head like a guilty child. One morning when I arrived in the sitting room as usual for my lesson, I saw that Mr. Murdstone had a thin stick in his hand. I could not take my eyes off it. You must be very careful today, David, he said with his unpleasant smile, holding the stick in both hands. I knew what would happen then. A terrible fear took hold of me, and all that I had learnt disappeared immediately from my memory, so that I could not answer any of my mother's questions. Mr. Murdstone got up from his chair. Well, David, he said heavily, I think you've worried your mother enough today. We'll go upstairs, boy. Come. And he picked up the stick. I heard my mother crying as we went upstairs. Please, Mr. Murdstone, I cried. Don't beat me. 
I've tried to learn. Really, I have, sir. But he did not listen to me. In my bedroom, he held my arms and started hitting me with the stick. I managed to get hold of his hand and bit deep into it. He cried out angrily and began to hit me as hard as he could. Above the noise of my screams, I could hear my mother and Peggotty crying outside the door. Then the next moment, he was gone. I heard him lock the door, and I was lying sore and bleeding on the floor. The whole house seemed suddenly very quiet. I stayed there for a time without moving. In the evening, Miss Murdstone brought me some bread and milk, which she left on the floor beside me, frowning angrily at me as she went out. I was kept locked in that room for five days and nights and saw nobody except Miss Murdstone, who brought me food but never spoke to me. To a small boy, the five days seemed like years, and I can still remember how frightened and guilty I felt. But during the fifth night, I heard a strange noise at the keyhole. It was Peggotty trying to give me a message. Master David, my dear, she whispered, sobbing. They're going to send you away to boarding school tomorrow. Oh, Peggotty, I cried. Then I won't see you and mother very often. No, my love, but don't forget. I'll take care of your mother. She needs her cross old Peggotty. I'll stay with her, although I hate these murdstones. And remember, David, I love you as much as I love your mother and more. And I'll write to you. Thank you, dear Peggotty, I whispered back, tears rolling down my face. Will you write to your brother, too, and Ham and little Emily, and tell them I'm not as bad as the Murdstones think, and send my love to them, especially little Emily? Peggotty promised to do what I asked. The next morning, Miss Murdstone told me that because of my wickedness, I was going away to school. She had already packed my case for me. My mother was only allowed to say a very quick goodbye to me when the horse and cart arrived. The driver put my case on the cart, and we drove slowly out of Blunderstone. I was still sobbing loudly when I suddenly saw Peggotty running after us on the road. The driver stopped and waited for her. With difficulty, she climbed up onto the cart. Here, Master David, she cried breathlessly, a little present from me and your dear mother. Take care of yourself, my dear. She put a small purse and a paper bag into my hands and held me so close to her fat body that I thought I would never breathe again. Then she jumped down and ran back along the road to the village. 
As we continued our journey, I dried my tears and looked at what she had given me. The bag was full of Peggotty's special cakes, and in the purse were eight bright shilling coins. Thinking of my mother and Peggotty made me start crying again. But just then the driver, Mr. Barkis, began to talk to me. He was a large, red-faced man who clearly found conversation difficult. Did she make those cakes? He asked slowly, having finished the one I had just offered him. You mean Peggotty, sir? Yes, she does all our cooking. Does she? replied Mr. Barkis with great interest. There was a long silence while he considered his next question. Does she have a young man, he asked. You know, someone who wants to marry her. Peggotty? A young man? I repeated, surprised. Oh no, she's never had any young men. Ah, replied Mr. Barkis, looking very pleased. Again, he thought for a long time before speaking. Well, he said at last, perhaps if you write to her, will you be writing to her? You could give her a message from me. You could say, Barkis is willing. Would you do that? Barkis is willing, I repeated innocently, wondering what the message meant. Yes, of course, but you could tell her yourself. Mr. Parkis, when you return to Blunderstone tomorrow. No, no, he said. No, you just give her the message. Remember, Barkis is willing. After this conversation, Mr. Barkis was completely silent for the rest of the journey. When we arrived in Yarmouth, I bought paper at the hotel and wrote this letter to Peggotty. My dear Peggotty, I have arrived safely in Yarmouth. Barkis is willing. Please give my love to Mother. Yours, David. P.S. He says it's important. Barkis is willing. In Yarmouth, I was put on the long-distance coach to London and traveled all through the night. At the coach station in London, I was collected by a teacher, Mr. Mell, and taken to Salem House, the school which the Murdstones had chosen for me. The school was a large old building with a dusty playground, surrounded by a high brick wall. It looked strangely deserted. I was very surprised to find that none of the boys were there, and was told that they were all on holiday and that I had been sent there during the holidays as a punishment for my wickedness. The headmaster and teachers were on holiday too, all except for Mr. Mel, who had to look after me. I spent a whole month in that miserable place, doing my lessons in the dirty, empty classroom, which smelt of old food and unwashed boys. Every evening I had to eat my supper with Mr. Mel and then go straight to bed. The worst thing was the sign I had to wear around my neck 
it said, be careful, he bites. I was only allowed to take it off when I went to bed. Although I was extremely lonely and unhappy at this time, I was not looking forward to meeting all the other boys. I felt sure they would laugh at me, and especially at the sign I was forced to wear. But one day, Mr. Mel told me that the headmaster, Mr. Creakle, had returned and wanted to see me. So I went, trembling, to his part of the house. I realized at once that Mr. Creakle lived much more comfortably than the boys or the teachers. He was a small, fat man with a purple nose who was sitting in an armchair with a bottle and a glass in front of him. This is the boy who bites, is it? He asked unpleasantly. I know your stepfather, boy. He's a man of strong character, he is. He knows me, and I know him. Do you know me? Answer me, boy. He pulled violently at my ear. Not yet, sir, I answered, tears of pain in my eyes. Ah, but you soon will. Oh, yes, I have a strong character, too. You'll see. He banged his hand hard on the table. I was very frightened, but I made myself ask the question I had been considering for a whole month. Please, sir, I'm very sorry for what I did to Mr. Murdstone. Could, could I take this sign off before the other boys see it? Mr. Creakle gave a sudden, terrible shout and jumped out of his chair. I did not wait to see whether he was going to hit me, but ran out of his room and hid in my bed for the next hour. However, the boys were not as cruel to me as I had feared. I made a friend almost immediately, a boy called Tommy Traddles, who was known to be the unluckiest boy in the school. I was also noticed, and even smiled on, by the great James Steerforth, one of the oldest boys, at least six years older than me. He was a handsome, intelligent, curly-haired young man who had become an important figure at the school, with great influence over the younger boys. How much money have you got, Copperfield? he asked me. Eight shillings, Steerforth. I answered, remembering the present my mother and Peggotty had given me. You'd better give it to me. I'll take care of it for you, he offered in a friendly way. I opened Peggotty's purse and turned it upside down into his hand. Perhaps you'd like to spend some of it now, he suggested, smiling. A bottle of wine, a tin of biscuits, a few cakes, that sort of thing. I can go out whenever I like, so I can buy it for you. Yes, that's very kind of you, I said, although I was a little worried that all my money would disappear. When we went upstairs to bed, I realized that all my money had been spent, as eight shillings worth of food and drink was laid out on my bed in the moonlight. Of course I did not want to eat and drink it all by myself, 
so I invited Steerforth and the others to help themselves. The boys were very willing, and we spent a pleasant evening sitting on our beds, whispering to each other. I discovered that the boys all hated Salem House, which they considered one of the worst schools in the country. They especially hated Mr. Creakle, who was in the habit of beating them regularly with a heavy stick, which he carried with him at all times. The only boy he dared not beat was Steerforth. I admired Steerforth even more when I heard this. When we were all too tired to stay awake, Steerforth got up to go. Good night, young Copperfield, he said, putting a hand on my head. I'll take care of you. It's very kind of you, I replied gratefully. You haven't got a sister, have you? He asked sleepily. No, I haven't, I answered. What a pity. If you had one, I'm sure she'd be a pretty, bright-eyed little girl. I would have liked to meet her. I thought of him a lot that night, with his laughing, handsome face and his careless, confident manner. I could never have imagined what a dark shadow he would throw over the lives of people who were dear to me. I stayed at Salem House for three more months, although one or two of the teachers, like Mr. Mel, were kind to us boys and tried to teach us properly. We were too afraid of Mr. Creakle and his stick to concentrate on our studies. But Tommy Traddles and I cheered each other up if we were beaten, and I was lucky enough to be friendly with the great Steerforth in spite of the difference in our ages. However, my home, even with the Murdstones there, seemed a much pleasanter place than school, and I was glad when the Christmas holidays arrived and I was allowed to return to Blunderstone. I was a little surprised to find that my mother had a new baby, and I could see at once that she was not well. She looked tired and worried and very thin, but she and Peggotty were delighted to see me, although they dared not show it if the Murdstones were present. My stepfather and his sister seemed to hate me even more than before, if that were possible, and they made my life quite miserable whenever they could. In fact, I was almost pleased when it was time to return to school and see Traddles and Steerforth again. As the cart drove away, I remember my mother standing outside our house, with her baby in her arms, smiling sadly at me. That was the last time I saw her, and that is how I shall always remember her. Chapter 3 David the Orphan Life went on as normal for me at school, until my birthday two months later in March. I remember that day very well. It was cold, icy weather, and we boys had to blow on our fingers and rub our hands to keep warm in the freezing classrooms. 
when a message came for me to go and see Mr. Creakle. I thought that Peggotty must have sent me a birthday present, and so I hurried gladly along to his room. But there I realized something unusual had happened, because it was Mr. Creakle's wife who was waiting to speak to me. David, my child, she said kindly, holding my hand. We all have to accept that our loved ones can die at any moment. I looked at her, trying to understand what she meant. I'm sorry to tell you, she continued, that your mother is dangerously ill. There was a mist in front of my eyes, and suddenly burning tears ran down my face. I knew the truth. Your mother is dead, she said. I was already sobbing loudly, and I felt I was an orphan, quite alone in the world. Mrs. Creakle packed my case herself and sent me home on the coach for the funeral. I did not realize at the time that I would never return to Salem House. When I arrived home, Peggotty met me at the door, and we cried miserably in each other's arms. Mr. Murdstone seemed very sad and did not speak to me at all. Miss Murdstone, however, showed her usual firmness of character, which she and her brother were so proud of, by checking that I had brought all my clothes back home from school. And after that, she showed no interest in me at all. There was a deathly stillness in the house. Peggotty took me up to the room where my dear mother's dead body lay, with my little brother, who had died a few hours after her. Everything was fresh and clean in the room, but I could not look at my mother's lovely face, which would never smile at me again without crying. How did it happen, Peggotty? I asked, sobbing. She was ill for a long time, Master David. She got worse after the baby was born, you see. She was sometimes unhappy and forgetful, but she was always the same to me, her old Peggotty. Those two downstairs often spoke crossly to her and made her sad, but she still loved them, you know. She was so sweet and loving. I always sat beside her while she went to sleep. It made her feel better, she said. There was a short silence while Peggotty dried her eyes and took both my hands in hers. On the last night, she asked me for some water, then gave me such a patient smile. She looked so beautiful. The sun was beginning to rise, and she put her head on my arm on her stupid, cross old Peggotty's arm and died like an innocent child going to sleep. After my mother's funeral, I began to wonder what would happen to me. The Murdstones did not even seem to notice that I was in the house. They had told Peggotty to leave, as they did not want her as their servant anymore so Peggotty was going to her brother's in Yarmouth, 
until she decided what work to do next. She suggested taking me with her for a holiday, and to my surprise, the Murdstones agreed. So next morning, Mr. Barkis appeared at the door with his cart, and Peggotty's cases were put on it. We climbed up and sat beside him. Peggotty was naturally a little sad to leave her old home, where she had been so happy with my mother and me, and at first she cried a little. But when Mr. Barkis saw her drying her eyes and looking more cheerful, he too began to look happier, and he whispered to me, Barkis is willing. You told her that. Aloud, he said to Peggotty, Are you comfortable? Peggotty laughed and said that she was. And are you comfortable, Master David? he asked. I said that I was. Mr. Barkis was so pleased with this conversation that he repeated it many times during the journey. And Peggotty and I both had to keep giving him the same answer. When we arrived in Yarmouth and got down from the cart, we said goodbye to Mr. Barkis. Daniel and Ham Peggotty were waiting for us. Daniel and Ham were exactly the same as I remembered them, cheerful and generous as ever. But little Emily seemed different somehow. She was taller and prettier, but she did not want to play with me or spend her time with me. I was rather disappointed because I still considered she was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen, and I thought I was in love with her. Daniel and Ham were very proud of her intelligence and beauty, and just smiled when she laughingly refused to sit next to me. But they all listened with interest to my stories of school life at Salem House. I told them about the other boys, especially the handsome, clever Steerforth. I admired him so much that I could not stop myself telling them all about him. Suddenly I noticed that Emily was listening eagerly, her blue eyes shining and a smile on her lips. She blushed when she saw that they were all looking at her and hid her face behind her hands. Emily's like me, said Peggotty kindly, and would like to see David's friend, Mr. Steerforth. The days passed happily, although Emily and I did not play together as we had done before. Mr. Barkis was a frequent visitor, and soon Peggotty explained to me that she had decided to marry him. I'll love you just as much, David, my dear, when I'm married, she told me holding me close to her, and I'll be able to come and see you in the cart any time I like. Barkis is a good man, and I'm sure I'll be happy with him. He's got a nice little house, and I'll keep a little bedroom there for you to use whenever you want. You'll always be welcome to come and stay. So when I returned to Blunderstone, Peggotty had become Mrs. Barkis and I was glad to think of her in her own house with a husband to take care of her. At home, 
My stepfather and his sister did not seem pleased to see me and were clearly trying to find a way of getting rid of me. As they considered school too expensive, they finally arranged for me to start work, although I was still only ten years old and very small for my age. I was sent to London to work in a warehouse in the east of the city near the river. My job was to wash bottles, which would then be filled with wine, or to pack the filled bottles in cases. I was paid only six shillings a week. There were several other boys who worked with me, but I was the only one who had been to school. All the warehouse workers were coarse, rough people who were used to working in dirty conditions for long hours. No words can describe the horror I felt when I realized what my life was going to be like from now on. I was deeply ashamed at having such a job, and I was also afraid that I would forget everything I had learned from my mother and my teachers. I would never find friends like Traddles or Steerforth or be able to get a better position in life. It was an extremely unhappy time for me. My stepfather had asked Mr. Quinion, the manager, to find me somewhere to stay in London. So at the end of my first day, I was called to Mr. Quinion's office and introduced to an important-looking, rather fat, middle-aged man with a head as bald as an egg. His name was Mr. Micawber, and he offered me a spare room in the house he was renting with his family. I agreed to take it, and Mr. Micawber and I walked home together. The Micawbers were obviously very poor, but tried hard not to let this show. The house had several floors of rather dirty, empty rooms with very little furniture. Mrs. Micawber was a thin, tired-looking woman with a baby in her arms. The baby was one of twins, and in all my experience of the family, I never saw Mrs. Micawber without at least one of the twins. They also had a four-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. Their only servant was a young orphan girl. I never thought, Mrs. Micawber told me sadly as she showed me my room, when I lived with mother and father before I was married, that I would ever be as poor as this. But as Mr. Micawber is for the moment in difficulties, I must of course accept the situation. I'm afraid he owes a lot of money, but his creditors will just have to wait. You can't get blood out of a stone, nor can anyone get any money at all out of Mr. Micawber at present. I soon realized that neither Mr. nor Mrs. Micawber had ever been able to manage money the little that Mr. Micawber earned was not enough, either to keep his creditors happy or to pay for the needs of his growing family. So his creditors were constantly at the door, demanding payment, and meals were rather irregular in the Micawber house. 
Mr. and Mrs. Micawber's moods varied according to the situation. One moment Mr. Micawber looked extremely miserable and depressed. The next he was brushing his shoes and singing a song before going out. Mrs. Micawber's character was similar to her husband's. Sometimes I came home to find her lying on the floor with her hair undone, looking wild and desperate. But an hour later, she was cheerfully eating a good supper. I lived with these kind people for several months and became very fond of them. I bought my own food out of my wages because I knew the Macabers hardly ever had enough for themselves, and I lived mostly on bread and cheese. As they were so short of money, once or twice I offered to lend them a few shillings, which they refused to accept. But at last, Mr. Micawber's creditors became tired of waiting for their money and went to the police, who arrested him for debt. He was taken to the king's prison and asked me to visit him there. When I arrived, I was shown to his room where he was waiting for me. He seemed quite broken-hearted and even cried a little. This is a black day for me, Copperfield, he sobbed. I hope my mistakes will be a warning to young people like you. Remember, if a man earns 20 pounds a year and spends 19 pounds and 19 shillings, the result is happiness. But if he spends 20 pounds and one shilling... The result is misery. By the way, Copperfield, could you lend me a shilling for some beer? Mrs. Micawber will pay you back as soon as you arrive home. And when the beer arrived, he appeared much more cheerful. We had a pleasant evening, telling stories and jokes. He stayed in prison for several weeks, and I visited him regularly. I was delighted to hear on one of my visits that he would soon be free, as his creditors had unwillingly accepted the fact that he had no way of paying his debts. I gave the news to Mrs. Micawber when I returned home. We celebrated by sharing our supper and a glass of wine together. May I ask what you will do, madam, when Mr. Micawber is free? I asked politely. My family said Mrs. Micawber grandly, believe that Mr. Micawber should move to the country, to Devon, and carry on his business interests there. Mr. Micawber is a very clever man, Master Copperfield. I'm sure he is, I agreed. Although they haven't found anything exactly right for him yet, my family think he should be ready in Devon in case something turns up. She put down her empty glass. And will you be going with him, madam? I asked. I must. I will. Mrs. Micawber's voice rose to a scream. He is my life, my love, my husband, the father of my children. I will never desert Mr. Micawber. You can't ask me to desert him. I felt very uncomfortable, as I had not asked her to desert him at all but she soon became calm again and finished her supper. 
I was becoming used to the macabre's changes of mood. I now realized that when the macabre's left London, as they were planning to do, I would be very lonely in the city. I still hated my work in the warehouse and wanted to make a better life for myself. I thought about it for a long time and decided there was only one thing I could do. I would try to find my one surviving relation, my father's aunt, Miss Betsy Trotwood, and ask her to help me. I knew she lived somewhere near Dover, in Kent. I could go there by coach, because Peggotty had once sent me ten shillings to keep, in case I ever needed it. The time had come to use that money. Thanks for listening to Dreamy. Sweet dreams.